In this episode, I am speaking with a special guest, Melissa Doman. She's an organizational psychologist, a former clinical mental health therapist, and the author of Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work, Here's Why and How to Do It Really Well. Melissa works with companies across industries around the globe, including clients like Google, Dow Jones, Microsoft, Salesforce, Simmons, Estee Lauder, and so much more. She's been featured as a subject matter expert in Vogue, the BBC, CNBC, and in LinkedIn 2022 and 2023, top voices on mental health. Having lived abroad in South Korea, England, Australia, and traveling to 45 countries, Melissa calls upon her global experience to inform how she works with companies around the world. She has one core goal, to equip companies, individuals, and leaders to have constructive conversations about mental health in the workplace. It is my delight to have this conversation with her. So in this episode, I'm a little bit digressing from just really focusing it on ADHD. And I wanted to just address the entirety of mental health in the workplace and who better to do it with than my friend, Melissa Doman. Here we go. Welcome to Proudly ADHD at work and in business. I am your host, Coach Kathy Rashidian, and I help professionals like you understand the science behind your unique brain so you can unlock that inner genius. Ready to transform your ADHD into your best asset? Keep listening. Welcome to another episode with Coach Kathy. Well, I have another gem of a guest for you guys, and you're in for a treat. This one is a little bit different, this episode. We're not just talking about ADHD. We're talking about the broader scope of all things mental health, and especially in the workplace. So I am sitting here with the author of this amazing book called, Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work, and Here's Why and How to Do It Really Well. Melissa Doman, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a long time coming. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, we're going to, this is, I've got the book in hand. And then for those of you that know me by now, I have a hard copy. I have a soft copy that I listen to because that's how I roll. So I, I want to start with this chapter around why mental health at work matters. There's a section in the book and I'm going to read it off for us. And this is going to get us into the conversation. So the title of the paragraph is, or this section is, Mental Illness Can Be a Strength. And I'm going to pause for a second. For those of you know that I've written about ADHD and superpower and all that stuff, you all know that for me, I don't see it as a superpower. I see it for what it is, but also I see the strength that I have in it. I also see the deficits that it causes in my life. So, I, And I just loved how Melissa has put this together. So here we go. This is what she says. I want to take a moment to explore a possibility that you may not have considered that certain mental health conditions may actually be a strength at work where someone can channel their symptoms into incredibly productive, creative, or helpful work, right? They're channeling the symptoms. Love that. And then she goes on to say, think about the resilience, tendencies, 
and mental toughness required to manage ongoing mental health issues, manage your finances, relationships, succeed at work, and to deal with the challenges we face every day. Living with mental illness takes serious self-awareness, courage, and insight, not to mention the vulnerability and openness required to address and work through issues that arise from it. It's so weird to have me read to me. (laughs) Yeah, I just love that, Melissa. Like, well said, right? Thank you. So you you go. Go deeper into this about the strengths that you see. And yeah, like truly, I've got all this shit to deal with and I still go to work and try to put a face on. It's and the thing is that I I historically and sociologically I get it. And you know, I realize this is a podcast, so for those who are listening, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. I get it why sociologically and historically that, you know, seeing folks who have a mental illness, they see it as a a a weakness or that some they'll won't be capable, you know, some other stupid stereotype. And the types of mental illness that they were exposed to, the lack of understanding around that, the lack of resources and structure in place to help people be healthy, successful, while also living with a mental illness would lead people to believe stupid shit like that. Mm -hmm. Because it was so shrouded in guilt and shame and misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that when people were struggling with mental illness, like way, way back in the day, there weren't opportunities for them to be understood or set up for success. So how could people see that having a mental illness, and again, it is certain types because some can be incredibly debilitating and incredibly difficult, but that given the right structure for success, given the psychological safety to speak to people about what that experience is like and how they can channel it in a, in a healthier way, I understand the absence of understanding mm-hmm. that having certain types of mental health conditions can actually be a, a strength, particularly in a work setting, but also the lack of understanding that for people who experience a mental health condition and they're able to manage it effectively, because I, I really, it drives me nuts when people are like, well, we're going to find a cure. I'm like, it's, it's not about curing. It's about management, promoting insight, yada, yada, yada. And so it's, I, I understand why people thought that way. And it's, it's really not the case anymore because if you just really think about it, to be able to be aware that you are emotionally struggling with something, to be aware that you should probably do something about it, and then to actually do something about it is what, what a skill, what a strength. Do you know how, well, you know, preaching the choir here, but do you know how hard it is to actually do that? The work that's required, the energy, the yeah. effort that's required that a lot of people don't do. And, and it's, you know, unfortunately, in, in some cases, very unfortunately, it's about lack of access to resources, thinking something's wrong with them, thinking that they can't talk to others about that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is when people struggle They do have access to resources and they don't do anything about it because it's too hard. So if people are actually aware of and doing something about it, that should be seen as a mature, healthy, responsible adult thing to do where someone has more 
self-awareness, emotional intelligence, responsibility. These are all good things. So if you see somebody who is struggling with a, a mental health condition, they don't hide it. They do something about it and they find healthy ways when possible to, to channel it in how they do their work or how they manage their workplace relationships. How, how could that not be a strength? I literally don't understand. And so I thought it was important to, to flip that narrative on its head because it just doesn't make logical sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I don't even want to add anything to that. It's just no. period. Done. Mic drop. <laughs> that, was, that was good. That was good. And again, as I read through the pages of this book, man, you left no rock unturned. Like you go into religion, you took, you go into generational differences or the gaps and generational point of views. Like it was just like everything you've covered in this book. Honestly, such a treasure this book is. They're on page 36. This was, I was like, ooh, she even talked about this. Oh, what Um, what shit did I start? The 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 positive (laughs) mental health movement. Episode on this oh BS about. Oh yeah. And I love how you even said, like there was a section where you're like, you know, go to this 90-day program and and you will like be transformed. And as a trained coach, no, man, it's not only 90 days. Like it, it's a lifelong thing because life events keep happening. Mm-hmm. So tell me about why this positive movement kind of irks you a little bit. Well, you know, it's funny. I was on another podcast with this amazing woman in Canada. And we talked about the difference between the positive mental health movement and toxic positivity versus mm-hmm. offering hope. Please go on. Yeah. So, oh yeah, she's like Canadian me. I love her. She's amazing. Lindsay Recknell, she's great. And I want to believe that there aren't nefarious intentions when it comes to this movement. The world is one dumpster fire after another and trying to find happiness, find hope, choosing to be positive is a form of coping that many people feel is sometimes the only thing that is achievable or reasonable or realistic in the world as it exists today. There's a lot of bad stuff out there and they've felt like they've tried other things. It didn't make them feel good. It didn't take the edge off. So they're like, well, why not try this? Why not try to force my brain to be as happy as possible all the time so all of this stuff doesn't give me an existential sense of dread? I I get it. I do. But that's not the human condition. That's not how brains work. That's not how people work. And did you ever see the film Inside Out, uh, which I'm totally obsessed with and is based on real neuroscience and child Mm -hmm. developmental Mm -hmm. psychology? It's, you know, it's not BS. Yeah. What happened when Joy constantly tried to take over? Mm. The rest of the mood board got pretty pissed off and they started pushing their way through because we have joy and all of these you know, derivatives of that is evidenced by the feeling wheel from Dr. Gloria Wilcox, but we also have dozens and dozens and dozens of other emotions that are present for a reason that give us the ability to respond to our environment around us to tell us how we should feel and if we need help. The positive mental health movement squashes that. And so anytime I see you want to create a positive culture of mental health, that's the first mistake. It, the phrase that should be used is a 
a constructive culture around mental health or viewing mental health in a, he- a healthy, reasonable, realistic way. Because when you're trying to constantly put this toxic positivity, positive, positive, positive around everything, it unintentionally makes people feel like if I don't choose to look at life and relate to you in this way, that my other thoughts and experiences are not welcome in these conversations or in this workplace. Mm -hmm. And granted, people complain for sport. We can admit that. That people complain for sport, they use other people as complaint receptacles. And when you encounter people like that, you're like, I just wish you would try to choose and be more positive. But it's it doesn't mean that the rest of our emotions and our human experience should be stamped down because that that's not healthy. It's not realistic. And sometimes you just need to be sad. Sometimes you just need to be angry. Sometimes you need to feel resentful. You know, these are all natural emotions that we have as social creatures. And my real concern is that this positive mental health movement, it, it's gone off the rails so quickly and has been morphed into so many different things it shouldn't be, where what it should be is developing the practice of learning how to reframe when something is going on so it doesn't feel like a a ton weight sitting on your chest or to try to consider different you know perspectives but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go through the natural emotions we have as and when they come up in response to stimuli that come our way why why can't it be both and i on that note that lately i'm in these very heavy conversations for for all the the reasons of what's happening back home in my homeland of Iran. Mm-hmm. And emotions are high. And in some of the dialogue that I have, I, I constantly hear this, don't bring emotions into the conversation. <laughs> to, to me, that's not a, like, like, it's like, oh, I have emotional intelligence and you don't. So don't bring into the emotions. I'm like, okay, <laughs> people are dying. What do you mean don't bring in? Like children are dying. How can I like not be like crying and talking to you at the same time? So I yeah. get get to that and, and kind of tie it into language and that language policing. So mm-hmm. what do you say to that? Because and I've seen this in the office where it is that is don't bring emotions into the boardroom, Kathy. You know, we just want to to me, that's kind of ties into that whole toxic positivity or am I wrong? Well, here here's what I would say. Emotions that are not positive can be uncomfortable for the people experiencing them or the people witnessing them. Usually speaking, because we're told that the way to help somebody who's experiencing something like that is to move them through it as quickly as possible or to just try to ignore it until it stops mm-hmm. because it, te- it takes effort to address that stuff. Mm-hmm. And Many people are uncomfortable with others feeling those things because they can either feel it coming from them or feel like they have to do something about it. Mm. And unfortunately, because emotional intelligence, even though it's, it is one of the top skills that is, is demanded in the workplace today, it is not a soft skill. People need to stop saying that emotional intelligence is a soft skill, critical skill, period. And the problem is that, you know, 
there's a lot of people who they don't develop that skill because they were raised by parents or caregivers who didn't have it, or it wasn't something that was talked about in the circles they ran in or the culture they're from. You know, there's lots of reasons that people don't, don't develop emotional intelligence. But unfortunately, because the display of the full spectrum of emotion is not encouraged in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Usually when emotion breaks through in the workplace, it's in a very intense, dialed up way. Got it. Yeah. So that's why folks say don't bring emotion into this because they don't think it's going to be a five. They think it'll be a 10 or a 12. Mm-hmm. And so in my opinion, that's why they say don't do it because typically speaking, the emotional displays at work are very severe because the ongoing, you know, as and when they need to occur. So these severe blips don't happen are not encouraged. That's it. So of course you're going to get an explosion because it's not, it's not just seen as like the normal ups and downs of the workplace. So that's, that's my opinion is people say, don't do it because when it does happen, it comes as like a burst. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. But also, I like that because what you because you you talk about self compartmentalization, right? Mm-hmm. And how you know we, we kind of say this is my work self, this is my personal life. And mm-hmm. what I'm hearing, if I connect the dots together, is if throughout the day or the weeks, if we kind of weave those in there, then we don't go to that extreme because it's kind yeah. of we're pushing it away. Yeah, because if you are are pushing all of these things down, they will come out sideways at a time you don't want to towards people you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Because it's keep make no mistake, it is very much a learned behavior and very unnatural for us to focus on articulating how we feel instead of just doing it through action and impulse. Because we are animals that can talk. And so to train ourselves to experience emotions and talk about that is a very new behavior that humans are still figuring out. It's not a natural thing that we are inherently experts at. It takes a lot of practice because the more archaic parts of our brain are now like, no, I'm angry or I'm sad and I want to do this. And this feels easy and patterned and don't push me. You know, that that's, that's the brain. And we're basically saying to it, no, use our words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, that's, it's really difficult. It's not an easy thing or everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Makes sense. It makes me think about that whole, either you're living out of that amygdala hijacked, brain or mm-hmm. and I, I like what you said when we say that no it's pausing it and letting it know it's safe it's okay and we can get yeah. into their thinking brain and and decide and and think well also the prefrontal cortex and yeah. the amygdala don't really like each other exactly. so when one yeah. when one yeah. lights up the other shuts down exactly yeah yeah so. and that pause in between is allows for that 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 challenging to happen Ooh, it's challenging. Harder. <laughs> yeah so much harder uh-huh. than uh-huh. yeah so going back to the language piece, piece, this this like emotional polices that are out there, there's also language polices out there. And I really appreciated that you brought this up in, in the book. And, and I want you to please, could, could you educate us on this? <laughs> I love the word. When, when somebody says, um, and I loved the, 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 the latest trends that I see. 
trauma therapy, trauma-informed, heal your trauma. Oh, there, there, there's trauma in there that you haven't healed. You need to go deal with that. Like, there's just like these personal attacks and I don't like it. And then there's this like, I'm triggered and oh, my PTSD triggered. Like these phrases, it's like, we got this crash course in mental health through social media. And I feel like now we're just throwing these things out there. Yeah. It, it, it's just, so talk to me about that. Let's go hold yeah. down the phrase, I'm triggered, because you explain it well. What's wrong yeah. with that statement? Well, something I want to pause first and, and, and address is when you say language police. So I find that phrase very interesting because, as I'm sure you've seen, there are two ways to address language that is either uninformed or hurtful to people. There are some people who go, hey, you may not want to say that because versus other people who will just come for you and and make you regret having ever opened your mouth without explaining to you why. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the latter is more common than the former. And don't get me wrong, there are some professional buttheads out there who are just awful in terms of what they say. And there are some people that will aim to educate them and they'll still tell them to F off. Like, I'm, I'm, and I'm not getting it twisted. That is the world we live in. No, I see it on LinkedIn all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. LinkedIn is becoming just as savage as Twitter. I've seen it. It's, it gets scary. But I, I am always a, a fan of educating, not berating, at least to first try with that. And what I find very interesting about mental health language or mental illness language is that because it's more abstract and not as concrete as referring to things of the, of the, you know, below the neck, they're more flexibly used in language because when you, when you have access to a newer nomenclature, you're going to use it. Even if it doesn't seem like the appropriate or correct thing to use and they might use it in the absence of something else that feels more accurate and the average person unfortunately can be pretty hyperbolic people don't like hearing that because it feels good to use intense words Mm -hmm. but they're not always the right words to use so when it comes to i'm i'm seeing a ton a ton a ton a ton of stuff about trauma and I think it's really good that we're having that conversation. I think it's great we're having that conversation. Absolutely. What I get nervous about is that there are a lot of people who speak about it with no training, with no clinical experience, with no understanding of the boundaries of that concept and the difference, the differences between trauma versus an uncomfortable experience. There is a spectrum to experience trauma. It is not the same as experiencing extreme discomfort. They're not always the same, but there's a blurred line because trauma has become a buzzword. And I get worried that people are not always vetting the sources of information and where they come from. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't value in people who have experienced actual trauma sharing their experiences of what that's like, how it comes up, what worked for them, as opposed to advising others on what to do when they're not, they're not trained to do so, and yet they still do. There is value in those stories. But 
it really muddies the waters in terms of what it is we're trying to achieve by talking about trauma more. Because there's there's a lot of voices, which is great, but they're not all saying the same thing and not all of it is useful. And then when it comes to the word triggered, you know, that that didn't even really come around until after World War II and didn't really get even normalized medically until like the 80s. And so it's far more common now because using mental health language to describe how we feel is something that became a lot more common with millennials and Gen Z. That's right. So the problem is that some people sometimes will overuse those words and some of them will weaponize those words because they know the weight that that they carry. And that really pisses me off because it just, it it can devalue and invalidate the stories and the voices of those who really need to say it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it, it really bothers me. And, and people will be hyperbolic about mental health language or co-opt mental illness language when they don't have a diagnosis or something seems like that. And you just wouldn't say it about other things. I will never forget. I was on a flight. I don't ask me where I was going. I'm on a plane every week and I cannot keep track of the time zones I'm in. I was on a plane going somewhere for a gig. And this woman was on the phone to a coworker when they landed. And she seemed pretty like curmudgeon-y throughout a lot of the flight. But then she was speaking to a coworker when we landed. And I am not exaggerating. In a five-minute conversation, when she was talking about something with like her boss or a colleague or a project, She said, I want to kill myself four times in a five minute conversation. And it just to a coworker about a project and her boss. And I was like, you don't know who's sitting around you who may have attempted in the past or lost someone to suicide. I mean, God, like what is wrong with you? Because people say this stuff all the time and it's so commonplace and no one stops them. No one stops them. Because then you're considered to be the language police. Mm. Mm. It's a tough line too, right? Because there's a time where if somebody said to me, we're not curing cancer, I didn't think anything of it. But then when I went through chemotherapy myself, that Mm -hmm. phrase for me now has a lot. It it, it carries a lot of weight for me. And I'm like, yeah, with no police, could we be curing cancer? Because I went through that. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I see that. And, and you know what it, so here's the other side of it though, Melissa, for me is Mm -hmm. the ones that do educate, but then I feel like they put up this wall. Like we're here to open up the conversation to create dialogue. And this is going to go into self-advocacy. If I see like somebody's coming in so Joan of Arc about it. And so like, we're fighting for the right. That's not the right way either. Yeah. Right, but then what it does no. is it shuts it off because it turns people else, off. Yeah, they turn off, and they're like, "This is so scary. I don't even want to touch it with a ten foot pole." Or you seem really condescending and judgmental. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Or I completely agree. You know, I had a client who said that somebody in her HR had told her that you know just because you have ADHD doesn't make you special. And first of all, I can't Ooh. believe that an HR would say such such nonsense, right? 
Ooh. But then, so then there's this, like, this other side of, like, it's all of that, like, this shit happens. It's, like, for real. So my, my, may I give an, an impression of why that person might have said something yes, like that? Yes, please, please, let's, let's, you know, we'll use it as a use case. <laughs> so... <clears throat> that person now keep in mind there is a a massive transformation going on in human resources when it comes to how they view mental health mm -hmm. i'm taking part in that and i there's a lot of people who are so people first and they're trying to do this in a different way and then there's some folks who have been through the ringer in hr and have been tossed around abused and it's it's a tough thankless job Yes. I'm not making an excuse for that person. What they said was wrong. And actually that sounds kind of illegal and they could get mm -hmm. in big trouble mm -hmm. for doing something like that. Like big trouble. What that sounds to me like there are a lot of people who will try to abuse what the ADA defines as, you know, recognized disabilities at work where they'll try to be very bandwagony and try to get certain accommodations at work or treated differently when they actually don't need it. There are people in this world who exist and do things like that. Yeah. So that makes me wonder how many times has that HR person encountered people like that who tried to like, you know, pull the rug over her eyes or tried to abuse a policy or, or whatever it was. Those people are not the majority. You yeah. and I both know that. Yeah. But we are more likely to remember negative experiences than positive ones. That's right. So to me, or, or she could just be an asshole. <laughs> or or I, I, I don't know what the gender of that person is. They could just be an asshole. <laughs> or they might have experienced enough people who made them jaded where they're like, Dude. you're not, you're not going to be pulling one over my eyes like other people did. That's right. There That's was another, what I think. There is an, absolutely, I agree. There, there's another story where a woman turns into her colleague and says, my son was recently diagnosed with autism. The colleague turns around and says, I'm so sorry. In a, like a very empathetic. So when I, when you hear that, like this is real oh shit here, right? Because to us, it's, the mom was actually excited because her son is like doing amazing things and now they know a little yeah. bit more. But yeah. the perception of the person receiving it. And sometimes I say, please, please have compassion for the way that person reacted because in their circle of the way they see that, that's the yeah. point of reference at the moment. It's, it's funny you say that because I've always been campaigning to get people to stop saying you know, suffering from mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I go, well, wait a minute. Some people do and some people don't. Yeah. Some people just experience mental illness. Don't call it suffering unless they do. Yes. The whole yeah. spectrum. There's some people who struggle with very light mental health conditions. There's some people who is completely debilitating and most of it is somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that we should use just one term. Like you wouldn't say someone who is suffering from diabetes, someone who has diabetes. So it's, it's a very, that, that experience is very personal to people. So I don't think that we should name how they're feeling about it. Love that. Love that. Self-advocacy in the workplace. So on that note, the, the, there's a few pages. And one thing folks, I, 
if you haven't picked up her book again, I, I, I am going to say pick up her book. I'm just telling you right now. One of the things about Melissa's book is she creates, she has sections where she gives you tasks, where you can reflect on the book. There's questions that, that, that she's asking. There, there's homework in here. And I love it. And it's very, very like tactical homework. So you're just not gaining this knowledge and just kind of one year at the other. There's actually things that, that you can do with this. On the self-advocacy front, you give so many different, like, here's how you talk to your boss. Here's how you talk to your coworker. Not to go into all of the details, but what would you like to say around self-advocacy and when it comes to mental health and how we want to represent ourselves in a way that is well-received? So while I deeply appreciate that all who came, all those who came before me have always been working on you know, we want to talk about mental health at work. It's good. We should talk about it. We should talk about it. We should talk about it. Well, that's great. But you can't, you can't just expect all of the onus to be on the listener and the supporter. There has to be sharing with purpose. There has to be sharing with intention. So if you're going to do this, if you're going to share about your mental health at work, and, and you don't have to, by the way, not everybody has to, it should mm-hmm. be the option without the obligation. You need to do some back-end reflection first about why and how you're going to do that. If you're going to talk about your mental health at work or a mental illness, why do you want to do that? Who do you want to talk to it about? Who do you want to talk to about it? What do you want them to do with this information? What are you prepared to do with this information? And why are you bringing this up in the context of work? These are the questions that people need to ask themselves because oftentimes they're driven to that burst where they end up talking about it in in being pushed to moments of desperation and they don't even know what they need in that moment and the person trying to help them doesn't know how to help them so i think there needs to be some responsibility on the sharer that we're not sharing for the sake of sharing we're sharing with intention and if you're going to talk about it you know if you just need a good old-fashioned word vomit we all need catharsis at some point that's not what this is about but if it's about something different than that If you're going to talk about it, you better be ready to do something about it. You can't just voice Mm -hmm. about your struggles and then don't take any action to do anything about it or tell people why you're telling them or what you need from them. That's not fair. That's holding them conversationally hostage. So I think think it needs to be, uh, there needs to be responsibility on both sides. And I, I'm always saying that in every event I do and I go, it's, it's a two-way street, you know, the people who are supporting and, but also the people who are sharing, it's got to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. I like that. Cause even in your book, you talk about the timing, when to do it, how to do it. Does the person have the mental capacity to receive you at the moment? You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, Hey, this is the news. Let me go share it. And if it's heavy, if it's like that other coworker, like, you know, talking about her, her son's diagnosis, it's just understanding and, and being compassionate on how it's received. Maybe at that moment, that was the first reaction. And, and, and then the woman probably asked like three other questions or whatever. We don't know. But mm-hmm. it's just, I, I just love how you give so many different examples. So, so even that part of your book is so powerful where it's just very tactical. Like I was following it along, like, where were you six years ago when I was diagnosed? Because I would have used this <laughs> as my like, okay, I'm going to talk to my boss this way. I'm going to talk to my boss. You know, I really did that. I, 
I told two people when I got diagnosed and I was in uh-huh. this massive project, a lot of responsibility. I chose to tell my boss, hey, I got diagnosed with ADHD. I'm on, on taking medications to manage it. That's all she needed to know. But I told it to my the right hand that was in my team, I gave him more detail. I said, look, if I'm rambling on, if I'm forgetful, like I gave him a yeah. little bit broader because he was working with me hand in hand every day. Mm-hmm. So I gave him a little bit more and mm-hmm. so he could see the big picture. So then that ties yeah. into that's great. leadership, right? So on the leadership front, this the how do you, you talk about leadership stoicism. It's leaders that are listening in, in this. So there are those leaders, let's say, that moved up the ladder with their diagnoses. And, and now they're at this point of, okay, so I not only need to own my stuff, but I'm also managing people. Mm-hmm. What, what would you want to say to those leaders? Humanize yourselves to the teams that you lead and let them support you sometimes. Mm. Tell me about what, what humanizing. What would that look like? What would one scenario be? It's so interesting to me how, based on a job title, that people are supposed to be even more infallible the higher they rise. Yes. And it just stuns me that this is still a thing. Because when we look to people to be leaders, we unconsciously expect them to be above it all. And if we've learned anything in the last few years... It's leaders who show that they are fallible creatures, just like the rest of us. We feel more connected to those people. We appreciate their honesty. We appreciate that they have struggles like we do when people often think that they're not as well-rounded or developed or as good as those leaders. It shows that they're, they have cracks in them just like we do. And so there will always be people, and I hate saying this, there will always be people that if a leader shows that they're having an issue, that they will doubt that leader's ability. Yeah. There will always be people like that. I would be lying if I said there weren't, there wouldn't be, because that that's human nature. You know, you look to leaders to to lead, to guide, to be strong, yada, yada, yada. But there will always be people that will always expect that. And if they see anything less than that, it creates doubt and uncertainty. There will always be people like that. But a lot of leaders are working to show the journeys of their own struggles to basically say, you know, you can be honest about these struggles and still achieve things and get and get to this point. I did it. Mm -hmm. Why can't we normalize that you can do both? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of leaders are working on that, basically showing those things can happen concurrently where you are struggling and you're growing as a professional, growing as a person. And so I think it's about not only sharing the struggles, but explaining that going through struggles while you become a leader is just normal. And that anybody who treats it otherwise is is attached to an outdated concept that's incredibly unhealthy and has fucked up a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Can we just say that for the people in the back? Like I just, <laughs> this, this particular section on repeat over and over. And I think it needs to be said so many times till they they realize that you know enough take with years. this masking, enough with this trying to hold a certain facade. And I think we sometimes do it to ourselves too. That that mm-hmm. whole like as a leader, I'm supposed to show up. As, so like you know enough with the with that 
putting it's your gonna old take self. Time. It's going to take time. And there's so many influences and lenses that go into that, you know, whether it's gender, the family that raised you, religion, your culture, previous job experiences, your self-concept, your personal narrative. There are lots of things that that go into that. And, you know, there's some people who they are just really uncomfortable with that prospect. And there's other people who want to do it a little bit, but not fully. So I always try to encourage people, don't be a brick wall, but don't be an open playing field. Be a fence Ooh. and decide what you're going to let through. Oh, love that. Be a fence. On that one. Yes, so good. Yeah, be a fence. You don't have to let it all through, but you got to let some of it through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So good. All right, my last one. This one is, is depending on when listeners are listening to this right now, this is October 25th, 2022. And I'm going to bring this to a personal level with, with what's going on currently in, in, in Iran and with this revolution and the women's revolution of, of mm-hmm. speaking up for their, their basic human rights. These days, I find myself in this place of social justice a lot more, Melissa, to the point that you know, it's like, what do I want to say? How do I want to say it? So I'm really mm-hmm. in my emotions, in my head. And in a way, I'm thankful that I'm not working a nine to five job because mm-hmm. I think I would call in sick every day. Full transparency, yeah. right? Because it's so heavy. So and then we we just came out of, well, I don't know if we're still in it or out of it, the whole COVID thing, right? A lot of this we're, stuff- We're tail end going into endemic status. Right? So all of that is still hovering. Yeah, And then we're expecting to show up with this nine to five. What do you want to say to some of us that are going through this, this struggle? What, what, what message do you have around that? Of it's the funny that, factors that are coming in at us. It's funny that you say that I, you know, I'm watching what's going on in Iran and a lot of other things around the world. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind, I'll share a personal example. You know, I'm self-employed. My boss is me. Mm-hmm. She she could be she could be cool sometimes. Sometimes she's kind of a bitch, but you know, she's all right. Yeah. I remember the day that Roe versus Wade got overturned. Exactly. And I cried so hard I couldn't breathe. Yeah. I physically couldn't breathe. My husband had to come over to me and put his hand on my sternum and rub my back because I was hyperventilating. I like couldn't function. And I was slated that night to talk to 200 women at a conference. Oh my God. And I was like, how am I going to do this? And so I, you know me, I'm not one to hide how I feel. And so I went to this event as the last speaker of the day. It was like a whole day agenda. And I got up on the stage and I, oddly enough, was going to be talking about achievable and practical stress management (laughs) to a a room full of women. I was like, oh, my God, the timing of this is like it's like a it's like a, you know, tragedy slash comedy. And I I looked at all of them and I said, I'm so excited to be here. And I I also need to say I I cleared it with my client first to make sure it was okay, Mm -hmm. And. I said to everybody, I don't care what your politics are. This is a room full of women. And there are some women in this room who are 
not able to function, but they're pretending like they are. Mm-hmm. So just whatever, I don't care what your politics are. You just need to be here for each other today. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that I was the only speaker who addressed it that day. Well, I couldn't believe it. I was like, how is that possible? And so I think what it really comes down to is it, it it's really I know every generation says this. It's pretty bad out there. And I know that we go through historical cycles of uproar and we're in one right now. But I think there are two things. One is making space for continual conversations because more things will come. Mm -hmm. Having difficult conversations about how different communities are being impacted. Avoidance is no longer a strategy. You don't need to be in that community to give empathy and just ask someone how they're feeling about what happened and how you can help. You don't have to be in someone's community to do that. And the other thing is that I was talking to, I forgot who I was talking to, but I basically was saying, you don't understand, even though COVID is becoming more under control, we have more resources now to manage it. It'll be around every year, like the flu. And it's it's just here to stay. And this is why we can't have nice things because we couldn't agree on how to deal with it. But there are some people who will never get over what happened. There will be some people who there are other things that happened during the pandemic, you know, regardless of COVID. They'll never get over what happened. There's going to be a whole spectrum of experiences and what people carry with them. So no one has the right anymore to say, why don't you get over it? Mm. No one has the right to do that anymore. There's a difference between being like a grudge holder and holding on to things versus being semi or semi permanently or permanently impacted by something that shook you to your core. Yeah. No one gets to say, why don't you get over it anymore? Will make me cry. No, it's okay. Your face can leak. It's healthy. Oh, it's healthy. That's good. I so appreciate your words. It it's oh, uh, it just I appreciate you and my heart. And and that's it, right? Just having that empathy. I love what you did to that room of women for them. And and oh, you you must have just like. Were there tears? <laughs> I would have been falling if I had heard you say there that. There were some. You're right. There because a lot of us are holding it all inside. A lot of us yeah. are. I had a physical reaction the other day. I was shaking for 30 minutes because I shared in a room of 200 people. And then afterwards, I was shaking for 30 minutes. I couldn't understand why. And I talked to a colleague and she's like, wow, your trauma did come through. And then this is your yeah. visceral reaction to it. Yeah, your nervous system is reacting. Right? So it's. Yeah. We're all holding it. And it's, yeah. that exhale is so much more important now than ever. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Melissa, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, this you're so sweet. I'm so happy to come talk. conversation. And I'm honored that you accepted my invitation. And I, I wouldn't so have grateful. missed it. Thank you. And I thank you for, for doing what you do and educating these companies uh. and organizations <laughs> on this such an important topic that... It's part of like, you know, it should be like basics of one-on-one. You want to get hired. You also have to know about your mental health. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Anything well, else before we wrap up, before we go. It, it's funny you mentioned that. And then I just want to have a, a parting piece of guidance. It's funny you mentioned that because I, 
I wish, and I hope that this will happen someday. I would love to get my book to be part of different MBA programs, yes. maybe at ma- a master's in HR programs. I think that it's it's a good you know piece of of training for people to give them before they even get into those roles. I'm not saying that for egotistical reasons. No, I'm saying so that they have the skill set out of the gate. And yeah. so I, I really hope I can do that at some point. You know, I have the the book is approved for like, you know, continuing edu- ed- education credits for SHRM, HRCI, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I'd really like to get it into educational programs too, just so people have a, a fighting chance when they get into the world of work. And for all of you who are listening, I'm very appreciative that you, you know, tune in to listen. What I would prefer is you do something with this education. So whether it is, you know, deciding how you want to talk about your mental health at work, how you support someone else, or if you want me to come into your company and crack some heads, just do do something with this education because we can't afford to wait. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. You're welcome. You're most welcome. All right, folks, here's the the conclusion of another episode. Man, am I lucky to have guests like like you. Thank you so much. And folks, I... I encourage you to replay and re-listen to this episode because there was a lot of gem and a lot of depth into this conversation. And until next time, my friends, keep on shining.